Jeremiah 33, verses 12 to 18. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel, nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I moved into the dorm my first year at Calvin College, our floor participated in a number of floor bonding exercises during orientation week. And one of those exercises was the game Bigger or Better. Hands up if you've played Bigger or Better. Oh, not many. Okay, it's fun. So uh, the premise of the game is pretty simple. We were divided into four different teams and each team was given a paperclip. And then we were sent out into the warm September evening into the neighborhoods that surrounded Calvin to knock on doors and ask if the, pe if the good people inside had anything bigger or better than a paperclip that they would trade us for. And then we would move on to the next house, taking our new treasure with us and try to trade that for something that was bigger or better, continuing on and on and on until at the end of the allotted time, we returned to our dorm to compare our treasures. Generally, people were pretty compliant. Uh, we traded a paper clip for a pen and then a pen for a spare can opener and then a can opener for like a long unused skateboard that was just sitting in the garage and so on and so forth. I think my team ended up coming back with a toilet seat <laughs> that remained in our common space next to the fireplace until maintenance was like, yeah, no, that has to go. But the winning team came back with a Dr. Pepper fridge, which is as it sounds, it is a full-sized fridge with a glass door and the Dr. Pepper logo at the top that you plug in. Someone was undoubtedly very glad to get the thing out of their garage to this group of college students who were willing to haul it away for free. And they did, and they schlepped it up to our third floor, uh, and it stayed in our dorm common space for the rest of the year, unplugged and useless. Merely a trophy reminding all of us of the winning team's glory. It may not in the end have been better than a paperclip, but it was definitely bigger than a paperclip. Though generally we think that bigger is better, right? A bigger house, a bigger TV, a bigger TikTok following. It's the politicians with a, a big presence, a big campaign budget who get the votes. 
We don't drive to go see someone's lone lit up wreath on their front door, but we will make a trip to see an entire front yard bedecked with inflated reindeer and sparkling Christmas lights. The bigger, the flashier, the more in your face something is, the better. When we hear, well, something will be better, we have expectations for what that something will be. And often, we expect it to be bigger. The people of Judah certainly had a set of expectations that shaped how they heard the prophecies and the promises that were relayed to them about the Messiah. And when we come to Jeremiah 33, the people hearing this particular prophecy are in a bad place. They need to imagine something that is better than their current reality. Because their current reality is grim. In 606 BC, Babylon invades the southern kingdom of Judah and takes a large group of people into captivity and turns the Judean king into a puppet king for Babylon. The Babylonians invade a second time in 597 BC. Remember that BC time moves backward from big to small. 597 BC, carrying off that king, King Jehoiachin, and another group of Judeans, and they replace uh, Je Jehoiachin with his uncle, Zedekiah, on the throne. And when Zedekiah has been king for 10 years, the Babylonians once more come bearing down on Judah, and they lay siege to Jerusalem. Things do not look good for Zedekiah or for Judah. But they really should have seen this coming, because for the last 40 years, a guy named Jeremiah has been telling them that this destruction was on its way. The book of Jeremiah is not a happy read. <laughs> He's not called the weeping prophet for nothing. For 40 years, covered in the first 30 chapters, Jeremiah tells one king after another, the Babylonians are going to attack you and subdue you and take you into exile. God is finished with your sinful ways. Enough is enough. Each of you kings is worse than the last, more unjust, more evil, more hard-hearted, more unrepentant. So God is going to take away your throne and your land and everything you thought you could count on so you will then realize who gave you all of those things in the first place and turn back to him. Understandably, the kings of Judah don't like this message. They prefer the message of other prophets who swoop in and out of the royal court saying, oh, this isn't going to last long. The Babylonians will take some people into exile, sure, but then within two years, God will smite the Babylonians and everything will return back to the way it was, if not better. Only that doesn't happen. And those false prophets end up dying and the only prophet left standing is Jeremiah, preaching his doom and gloom. Until one day Zedekiah has enough, and he throws Jeremiah in prison to try and keep him quiet. Which, unsurprisingly, does not work. Jeremiah keeps writing his prophecies. He writes to the exiles in Babylon, telling them to hunker down, plant some gardens, marry, have kids, settle in for a while. And he keeps writing to Zedekiah, telling him that even more destruction is on the way, and Zedekiah too will be taken into exile. 
So this is where Jeremiah is when we come to our text, in prison, writing to Zedekiah. And it's here, while he's in prison, with the Babylonians bearing down on them, that his prophecies take a turn. In the middle of the book of Jeremiah, chapters 30 to 33, we have what's known as the Book of Consolation. Jerusalem is a war-torn city. Babylon is right there. Jeremiah is languishing in prison. The prophets who once said that this Babylonian siege wouldn't be too bad are now saying that there is no hope left for anything. But in the middle of this darkness, God gives Jeremiah some words of hope. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. This promise that God refers to is the one he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, when God tells David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Only now, of course, it doesn't really look like God has kept up his end of things, does it? In the last years of Israel and Judah, the monarchy has been a disaster. Evil men have sat on the throne, and they haven't even been proper kings. They've just been these puppets for Assyria and Babylon. And now Israel is no more, and the last king of Judah is headed for ruin. God's people have no power, no dignity, no authority, no leadership. This promise of God has come to nothing. The people of Israel can't imagine how this is all going to work out in the end. But here, in the darkness of this despair, God says to the people, I have got something in store that is better than what you can imagine. I will fulfill this promise, he says, but it won't look the way you imagine it. It's not going to look bigger than the Babylonians or more impressive than the Assyrians, or more majestic than the Egyptians. Most of you would probably walk right by this answer to the promise, holding out for something bigger and flashier and more like what you expect. You'll walk on by because this answer isn't gonna look like a strong and mighty oak tree, but a mere sapling, a branch a twig coming up out of a dead and broken stump. The answer to this promise will be a baby who enters the world in a nondescript town, born to a nondescript family, whose first cries will be muffled by snorting animals. But this child, this promised one, will do what all the last kings of Judah failed to do. He will do what is right and just in the land. There's some irony baked into Jeremiah chapter 33 that has to do with names and titles. Zedekiah, 
the king who imprisoned Jeremiah and who will be the last king of Judah. His name means the Lord is righteous. And this new king that God promises will bear the name, the Lord is our righteousness. While Zedekiah might have borne the name, this new king will embody the reality. He will be what Zedekiah and all of the kings before him were not. Perfectly just, perfectly wise, perfectly righteous. He will be the perfect king. But not only will he be a king, because Jeremiah continues in his prophecy, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel, nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. Not only will this new king reign with justice and righteousness, he will also represent the people before God continually, making possible an eternally right relationship between God and his people. And how will he do that? He will do that because he is God. And he'll do that because he is human. He will be able to represent us before the face of God because he will be one of us, born into the world as a baby. Because Jesus, the king that is the answer to God's promise to David, was smaller than anything anyone expected, he was so much better than anything anyone could have hoped for. He was, in fact, bigger than anything anyone could have hoped for. His mission was bigger than any, what anyone had imagined. He wasn't just interested in restoring Israel to political power, but in restoring the whole creation, reconciling all people to their creator, ushering in a totally new kind of kingdom marked by justice, righteousness, and peace. In this stable in Bethlehem was born a king who was at once smaller, bigger, and better. A better answer to the promise than anything David could have imagined or expected. I wonder if, for us today, if we also have expectations that are in fact too small, too narrow, because they're focused on that which is big. We live in a post-Christian world. We know this. No longer can we count on cultural familiarity with Christianity, on prayers being offered in schools, on nativity scenes popping up in front of City Hall, on people saying Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. We know this about our world. But I wonder if some part of us is hoping to return to those days. If we are waiting for another Constantine who will make Christianity great again and bring about a day when our institutions and political systems and culture are all Christian. For waiting for a day when Christianity once again wields significant cultural influence. Because when we imagine Christianity having an impact on the world, which is something we all want, 
That's often what we imagine it will look like. That is what we expect influence to look like. But maybe this passage from Jeremiah is inviting us to think smaller, to not relegate our influence, the influence of our faith to those things that are big and obvious and powerful, but to wonder what impact just a sprout might have. This week, my aunt posted a poem to her Instagram story. It's called Small Kindnesses, written by Danusha Lamaris, and it goes like this. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you go by. Or how strangers still say, bless you, when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes, when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them and for them to smile back, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder, and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire, only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy? These fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat. Go ahead, you first. I like your hat. What if these brief moments of exchange are the true dwelling of the holy? In Matthew 13, Jesus, the Lord, our righteous Savior, tells a parable about a plant, a small, tiny plant. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. The kingdom that our Lord and righteous Savior ushers in grows through the spreading and multiplying of small branches, small acts of kindness, small deeds of righteousness and faithfulness. Not because we who do these deeds are powerful and mighty, but because the one who works through us is powerful and mighty, perfect in righteousness and justice, perfect in holiness. And so these small acts of faith become something so much bigger, so much better than we could ever have imagined. So we ask in this season of Advent, who are we waiting for? Jeremiah tells us, we are waiting for the baby who will be born in a stable, who is the Lord our righteousness, who is smaller than we expected and better than we could have hoped, 
and who works through us to spread the good news of his kingdom through the small deeds of faith that seep into every corner of creation. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord, our God, help us to look for small ways of making your kingdom known in the world. Help us to see everything, every exchange we have with people, every action, every word we speak, everything we do as an opportunity to bear witness to the Lord, our righteous Savior. Help us not to be apathetic, to think, well, other people will take care of it, or the church will do it, or our cultural institutions will somehow proclaim the name of Christ. Help us, God, to be a witness, to proclaim your name, and to work for your justice and righteousness in this land. When it feels like there is darkness, and when we're tempted to despair, remind us in this season that you came as a small baby, that you surprised people, and that you continue to surprise people. You continue to surprise us. So help us to pay attention so we might see you when you show up in our lives, that we might join you in the work of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.